0: From Trey's Hall at the Rutgers University Douglas Campus Center in New Brunswick, welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable on the opioid epidemic in New Jersey. This is the third of three podcasts on this topic, and in this program, the focus is on recovery from addiction. New Jersey continues to be a national leader when it comes to opioid addiction, in the painful and widespread impact on the state and its citizens, and in the public and private response to the disease. Former Governor Chris Christie brought significant attention to the crisis, and Governor Phil Murphy has fine-tuned this response with new investments to support data collection, community-based treatment providers, and addressing the underlying causes of addiction. But the opioid-related deaths continue to climb in part because of powerful new drug cocktails. More than 2,000 state residents have already died of drug-related issues this year that's doubled the mortality rate of 2016. In the final panel of our three event series on the opioid epidemic in New Jersey, we focus on the clinical and policy dimensions of long-term recovery. We'll explore how the state, with input from behavioral health providers, public officials, and other experts, can build a sustainable system to promote health and expand support services to help families and communities overcome the impact of addiction. In this program, we'll hear a keynote address from Marielle Huffnagel, executive director of the Ammon Foundation, Followed by a panel of experts, including Petros Lavunas, Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and Chief of Service at University Hospital in Newark, Eric McIntyre, Assistant Director of Recovery Support Services for RWJ Barnabas Health Institute for Prevention and Recovery, and Ken Pecorero, Director of Addiction and Co-occurring Services for CPC Behavioral Healthcare. Moderating the panel is Lilo Stainton, healthcare reporter for NJ Spotlight. And now let's go to the lectern for opening remarks from John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight.
1: Welcome. I'm uh, John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and uh, thrilled to be here. A really uh, important topic um, that we have uh, committed a lot of time and energy, as I'm sure all of you have as well. This is the third... Third of a series of three events around the opioid crisis. the first two were uh, first was prevention and then second was treatment, and this one obviously is recovery. And um, these events are very important to us as a as a news site and I th- and I think are important to the the community and the state of New Jersey in bringing people together to talk about these things. I, you know so much happens online these days and so much so many conversations, and I think it's critical to have Folks uh, in the same room and, and hearing from each other and meeting each other and telling each other's stories and and so thank you all for being part of that and and keep spreading the word. Uh, we will be there will be story a story off of this event and a page on our site as well as podcasts and and you know keep sharing those things. I think this topic more than any other uh, needs needs the awareness in the community getting out there and and providing each other information about it. Um, you know, as important uh, as that is, I'll do a little, um, you know, shameless marketing for NJ Spotlight. Critical uh, to our existence is is also our reader support, and and please, uh, any way you can, and um, you know, come to our page, donate, read again, share share our site. Uh, we've been around for about eight years now, and and doing well, but we certainly can't do it without your support. And, and please spread the word. Uh, also critical to that, uh, to our existence is, is the sponsors for events like this. Um, we couldn't do them without, without our sponsorships. And I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, to tell you a little bit about our sponsors.
2: Thank you, John. I'm Steve Shallott, I'm the Business Development Director for NJ Spotlight. Um, My role in this is a, as producer of the event, I'd like to thank everybody for coming, and of course, uh, um, for our speaker, Mariel, and our panelists upcoming, along with Lilo. Um, But all of us at NJ Spotlight would like to express sincere thanks to our sponsors for helping making today's event possible. Uh, Beginning with Robert Wood Johnson, Barnabas Health, which is the largest healthcare system in New Jersey, covering nine counties in a service area of more than five million people. It's also the state's largest private employer. Through a new public-private partnership, Barnabas Health and Rutgers University are forming New Jersey's most comprehensive academic health system dedicated to providing high-quality patient care, leading-edge research, and world-class health and medical education to transform and advance healthcare in the state. And specific to the opioid crisis, um, RWJ Barnabas Health has embarked on a system wide opioid prevention and recovery initiative led by its Tackling Addiction Task Force to take a proactive, multidisciplinary approach to combating substance use disorder. We'd also like to thank University Hospital, which, as a public hospital, is one of the largest providers of charity care and Medicaid care in the state. Located at University Heights in Newark, University Hospital is one of the nation's leading academic medical centers, a principal teaching resource of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, and a regional resource for advanced services across numerous medical specialties. Among their medical specialties are the Rutgers Cancer Cancer Institute of New Jersey and the state's First Liver Transplant Center. And as the only level one trauma center serving Northern New Jersey, University Hospital receives over 90,000 cases through their emergency department each year, working 24-7, 365 to address patients' most urgent needs. University Hospital also takes a proactive role in the greater Newark community, educating neighbors on health, maintenance, holistic wellness, and forging networks with community-based, faith-based, and educational organizations to increase access to vital healthcare Services. Our sincere thanks as well to Ammon Labs, a family-owned and operated. Uh, Ammon Labs has been the preferred drug testing laboratory of addiction treatment professionals and healthcare partners for over 20 years, providing quality services and competitive pricing. Through its commitment to compliance and responsible testing, Ammon Labs is a dedicated partner in the fight against opioid misuse, providing the tools necessary to empower addiction treatment professionals and make a positive impact in the lives of those suffering from addiction. In October of 2016, Ammon Labs launched launched its philanthropic endeavor, the Ammon Foundation, with the mission of empowering individuals in addiction recovery through core programs of life skills training and the providing of scholarships for continuing education. And finally, we'd like to thank the Employers Association of New Jersey, which is a nonprofit trade organization dedicated to improving employer-employee relations and to facilitating the exchange of information among employers in the state. They play a key role in helping companies master the complexities of labor standards and regulations. The Employers Association of New Jersey also helps good employers become better employers by assisting with work health solutions and benefits, such as multi-employer health plans, telemedicine, Employee assistance, and wellness programs. Thanks again to all of our sponsors for helping make today's event possible. All right, let's get the
1: program started. I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Marielle Huffnagel. She's the executive director of Ammon Foundation. As Steve mentioned, they're the philanthropic arm of the Ammon Labs. Um, And I was going to read her bio, but I'm not going to, for two reasons. One is she hates having her bio read. Um, and the second reason is uh, she's going to talk about her life story that's brought her here, which is a fascinating story and, and uh, humbling and, and inspiring. And so let's, let's uh, go at it.
3: Marielle. Hi, good morning. <laughs> um, So I think like the most painful thing is to sit in a room while someone reads every detail of your life in a bio, (laughs) it like makes me cringe. Um, But actually what I told John to to say about me is I said, just introduce Marielle as very good looking and our keynote speaker, but he didn't oblige. so like John said, my name is Mariel Huffnagel. I'm the executive director of the Ammon Foundation. Uh, I'm also a woman in long-term recovery, which means I've been alcohol and drug-free for since 2007, which is over 11 years. Um, much more importantly than just being alcohol and drug-free, what recovery has allowed me to do and to have um, is live life amongst you guys. Um, recovery has allowed me to be a daughter, a sister, a friend, an employee, an employer, a homeowner, a taxpayer, a, you know, a person amongst people, right? And um, some of that may sound seriously rudimentary to you guys. Um, And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, but um, none of those things were available for me when I was at the height of active addiction. Um, And so... I'm gonna do a couple of things. I'm gonna talk about my story uh, because I think putting a face on addiction and on recovery is really, really important. And I'm so thrilled that New Jersey Spotlight in this kind of series has included recovery because so often when we talk about addiction, we only talk about prevention and treatment. Um, and that's a really big problem, guys. Uh, so I'm really, really thrilled that recovery is being talked about more and showcased more. Um, I'm also really, really thrilled that, um, that it's, it wasn't an afterthought in this series, that there's a whole event on recovery um, because... If we look at, and I don't want to get into, I'm not a doctor, I'm sure there's doctors on the panel, I don't want to get into an argument about you know, addiction is a disease, what I, what I can say is factual is that um, addiction is a chronic brain disorder, right? And everything that any scientist has ever put together says that. So you can have a different opinion, but it's not based in fact. Um, so, with that being said, if we compare addiction to any other chronic, treatable disorder, recovery support is always a part of that conversation. right? So, um, and I'll use two examples directly from my family. So, um, one which has a much happier ending than the other, um, but both which I think are really important. So. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer about seven years ago. Um, She was diagnosed with stage two, right? And um, not even to get into the argument about the fact that they didn't say, you know what, Lorraine, why don't you come back when it's terminal and we'll deal with it then, right? Not even to get into sort of all of the details around that insurance covered everything, you know. Um, More importantly was an outpouring of love when she found out that she was sick right? Um, no one was like, oh, you should have ate better, or you should have not smoked when you were in your 20s, or, you know, how is your lifestyle affecting your cancer diagnosis, right? People were like, oh my God, you're ill, how can we help, and how can we get you well, right? Um, so my mother has been in remission for over five years at this point, and on the last day of her treatment, right, what happened is they didn't say you know, congratulations, you're done with your treatment, although they probably did say that, but they didn't say congratulations, you're done with your treatment, good luck, right? They said congratulations, you're done with your treatment and this is your recovery plan. And let's talk about um, how you're going to stay well. And let's talk about how we're gonna get you from today to the five-year marker, where research shows if you get to the five-year marker, the likelihood of remission of your, ca- your cancer coming out of remission is significantly decreased, right? And so what that included was things like, you know, for the first year, every quarter, you're gonna come see your oncologist. You're gonna get a mammogram every year. Um, these are some of the things that we'd like you to do with your, with your lifestyle, right? We'd like you to start meditating. We'd like you to change certain things in your diet. We'd like you to throw your microwave out. We'd like you to do all of these things. And then also, 20 minutes down the road um, is what's called the Cancer Survivor Center. And people from all over the county that, have, um, that, are, that are a survivor from cancer, they come and there's free counseling, free meditation, free yoga, free workout equipment, and there's peer support groups, right, which we think will be beneficial for you, you know, as you're in early recovery from this cancer. Um, and uh, all of that based in research, based in the fact that they know that if you can get to the marker of five years in remission from cancer, that the likelihood of your, your condition relapsing or coming out of remission is significantly diminished. So folks, I'm here to tell you that we have the same research about addiction, right? We have the same research about addiction that shows that it's chronic, progressive, treatable, but also fatal if not treated, right? We have the same research about addiction that shows if and when someone is able to maintain their recovery for five years, that person likelihood of re-engaging in use diminishes by 85%. What our research also shows us, and this is from John Kelly out of Harvard and the Recovery Research Institute in Massachusetts, um, what the research also shows us is at that five-year point, someone is not only 85% unlikely to re-engage in use, but they are at the same par as someone who has never had a substance use challenge, right? And so, how do we treat addiction, though? With that research that we, that we have, right? The way we treat addiction is acutely. Someone's lucky if they get 28 days of treatment, and then they're wished well, and they go on their merry way. You know, and, um, and our, our previous governor, Governor Christie, who, who had quite a stake in the addiction issue, um, used to always say, I don't think that we have an addiction issue, I think we have a relapse issue. Um, and that's my opinion, I, I think we have both, but, um, but I very much agree. I very much agree. We don't have systems in place, and that's not to minimize some of the incredible work that has occurred you know, by some of the people in this room over the last couple of years, because we are absolutely moving in the right direction. right? But for the most part, We still do not have systems in place that address addiction as a chronic, treatable, relapsing condition and support someone in their recovery process in order for them to maintain recovery. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself, right? So um, I often say two things, and I know there's some people in this room who have heard me speak before, um, but there's not much that's extraordinary about my story. My story is really extraordinary. I come from a regular home with regular people. You know, I don't have tremendous trauma as a kid. Uh, I don't come from generational poverty. I don't come from any of those um, societal, uh, environmental factors that tell you like, oh, well maybe this person is going to develop mental health or substance use challenges. I come from a home of love, right? I come with opportunity at my fingertips uh, and the potential to be anything and do anything that I wanted. In fact, when I was a little girl, my mother used to always say that she thought I was gonna be the first female president. So there's still hope, um, but you know, I don't know with that mugshot. Um, shot. <laughs> um, So um, the reason why that's important to share with you guys um, is because we can't talk about addiction and we can't talk about recovery without talking about stigma, right? Um, However, we also need to be careful in the way we frame stigma because there have been, there has been, excuse me, an addiction epidemic on our hands for years and years and years, right? Um, The addiction epidemic has primarily hurt communities of color and communities of a lower socioeconomic status. And unfortunately, um, we have dealt with that as a society as a war on drugs, which has turned out to be a war on people. Right? And so we have to be careful when we frame stigma, right? Because it can't just be that suddenly that upper middle class white kids are being affected with addiction and we're we're concerned about it as a public health issue, right? It has to be that we're concerned about it as a public health issue and we retroactively want to ensure that the people who have had injustice done to them due to stigma are empowered to build their lives in recovery and to reclaim what should have been theirs, right? So, so I'm careful when we, when we talk about stigma because just saying addiction happens to everybody is you know, we have to pay attention to it. It doesn't matter the race or the class or the gender or the socioeconomic status. That's true. Addiction doesn't discriminate. But we have to be careful when we talk about stigma that we are um, not implying, whether consciously or unconsciously, that, um, that now it matters because white people are being affected. So... So I say that to say that um, I am one of the upcoming wave of middle-class white people who were affected by addiction, right? And which is why it doesn't make my story extraordinary. It really just makes it extraordinary. I am one of many, right? but I do think it's important, when breaking stigma, to talk about that also because so often we think that addiction can't affect us because we don't look or talk or come from a certain place. And, um, and that was very much true for me. Even when I started to experiment very, very heavily With alcohol and drugs. I had this picture in my head of what someone who suffered from addiction looked like and since that wasn't me, I thought that I was immune to this. I didn't understand. And so I don't think it's important to get into the, the you know, the nitty-gritty details of, of my addiction story, um, specifically because I think the face of addiction is very, very clear these days, right? Um, we are talking about addiction, and it, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or Vine or Snapchat or whatever the kids are using, um, you know, whether you're driving down the street, whether it's in your family, like, the face of the terror, which is untreated addiction, is very, very clear. And that's also the face that perpetuates stigma, right? Because the only side of the coin that is talked about for the most part is the person who's suffering, right? Is that girl in the top, my right, your left corner, right? That face of addiction is very, very clear, right? So, I. I'll give you a snapshot of what it looked like for me, right? But the, the details of my story are, are, are just the same as many other stories. And they're the same as the news stories that you read, the Facebook videos that you watch, and perhaps the people in your family or your workplace um, that have been affected. And so for me, at the very end, addiction took me to a very dark place. Right, And addiction took me to a place of homelessness and prostitution and living on the streets of Norwalk, Connecticut, you know, in and out of institutions, jails, you know, mental wards, hospitals, treatment centers. Um, And I was heavily, heavily plagued, not just with substance use disorder, but also with bipolar disorder and bulimia for all of my teenage years. Luckily, I was able to enter into and maintain recovery at the young age of 21, which I also think is a really important part of the story because um, too often we pass off, right? That, um, that it's just a phase or that someone needs to, you know, get to this, this bottom or be a certain age to get well. And, uh, and that's not true at all. People get well at all different points in their life, um, and I'm a testimony to that, as well as some of the other people I see in this room and who I know their personal stories. Um, And so one of the things I also say is that, you know, um, how I've maintained my recovery is very much through grace, grit, and luck. And why that's important is because that is... Unacceptable to be the standard of how people get well, right? Um, I had the perfect. Ooh, I had the perfect storm of circumstances on May seventh, two thousand and seven, which for me included the criminal justice system. But after that, I had family who was willing to support me. I had access to a sober living house. I had access to treatment. Right and therapy after treatment, um, I had the ability to get a job. Right, whether or not it was, you know, under the table minimum wage, three jobs to you know make sure my electric bill was on, which it was. Um, but I had the ability to get a job. I had all of these things around me. Right, I was able to become enmeshed and ingrained in a peer support community, um, all of which allowed me to heal right, because I had a lot of healing that needed to occur and that needed to be done in a safe place, right. And so, so you can't need to wait for the perfect storm to get well, right. That is borderline criminal in my opinion, and that's just my opinion, that's not the opinion of Emin Foundation or Emin Labs. Um, And this is why I say that. I say that to come back to what I said in the beginning, which is this, that we look at addiction acutely, right? And we support it only when it's in a near terminal stage, right, and then we wonder why people are unable to get well. And my call to action, and anyone who's ever heard me speak knows that I always have a call to action, is we have to identify how we are supporting recovery for the long term, right? And without getting into the philosophy of the Admin Foundation too much, you know, we have to look at employment, housing, education, and healthcare, because that's how people are able to thrive. Not just people in recovery, but people. And so what are we doing? And my my call to you, if you're a provider, if you're a philanthropist, if you're whatever you do, there is a way that you can support recovery, right? There is a way that you can support recovery and it doesn't have to necessarily be providing services. It can be being a connector and it can also be being an ambassador about breaking the stigma surrounding addiction. So I hope that we get to talk more about recovery. I know there are some really incredible people on the panel who are going to talk about, you know, what we're doing in medicine what we're doing in the legislature, what we're doing in treatment. Um, But I I really hope that what today can do for you and continue to do after today is, is be a call to action to examine how are you supporting recovery? How is your agency supporting recovery? How does your family support recovery? And also challenge your own biases about addiction because we all have them. And it's not until we have the courage to address them that we can really move the needle forward um, in treating and embracing people who suffer. Thank you so much.
1: Can the panelists join us? Thank you, Mariel. That's fabulous. The way this is going to work, um, for those who haven't been here before, uh, we have a panel discussion led by um, NJ Spotlight's health reporter, Lilo Staton. Um, And we love the interaction to it, and and the way we, we handle that is we ask folks if they have questions that they want posed to the panelists to write them out on index cards that are on your table. And we will walk, be walking around the outside and just wave the card and and one of us will grab it from you and get it up to Lilo um, to uh, join the conversation as much as we can. We don't get to everyone typically, but uh, certainly we'll try to uh, address as many as we can. Um, There are also on your your tables uh, surveys, which we ask you to fill out before you leave. Uh, It's really helpful to us to get your feedback on what works and what doesn't. And so thank you very much in advance for doing that. Uh, what's a conference without a hashtag, of course, uh, in this day and age? And it's on the top of your program, opioids and NJ. So uh, for those of you who are on social media, please include that as well. Um, so let's get going. Again, uh, Lilo Stanton is going to be uh, leading. She's uh, been our healthcare reporter for several years now. A wonderful journalist and, and wonderful friend. And as you will soon see, a wonderful moderator as well. So Lilo, take it away.
4: I once uh, did a panel with someone who said, that's okay, I can just use my outside voice. I said, okay, great. So, when in doubt, um, thank you very much for being here, everyone. Um, I know it's a busy, busy time of the year. Lots going on, um, but this is is an important topic, and I'm so glad to hear what Mariel had to say. I was appreciate her appreciation, but I always personally feel like these are some of the, top, the issues that you never get to in those other discussions. You never get to talk about what happens after the treatment and after, after you do sort of the intervention, if you will. Um, I think everybody here probably is uh, clear on the impact of what is now um, an epidemic. I don't think there's any disagreement necessarily about that. Um, We've got tens of thousands of people seeking treatment every year, um, thousands more who don't get, uh, don't seek treatment, um, but still suffer. Um, And we are on track to lose a record 3,000 people in this state this year to uh, drug addiction, um, which is a preventable disease, I think. Uh, We can talk about that. But um, The state has invested significantly um, with new resources and policies, um, and there's been some assistance from the federal government. We can debate how how helpful that's been, but it's certainly been on their radar screen. and so we're adding here in New Jersey we're adding treatment beds. there's been a call for 900 new beds under governor, uh, former Governor Christie um, um, in any case now we have uh, we have Oh, uh, so we're increasing uh, investment in community centers. Uh, A big part of Governor Murphy's investment of more than $100 million uh, goes toward this this sort of piece. Um, We've been reducing prescribing on sort of the front end. Uh, It's down nearly 40% since 2014, according to the Attorney General's office. But um, we have... You know, the addiction continues, um, the disease is spreading in a sense, and the drugs are getting stronger and more lethal. Um, And we've touched on sort of prevention. And risk reduction in the first panel that we did in June, we talked about the ALTO program at St. Joseph's and other strategies to protect people um, sort of going in. Uh, We talked a lot in the treatment panel about medication-assisted treatment um, and the need to expand capacity. Um, But today we're really going to get to, but it's interesting when I was looking at Mariel's uh, graphic, you know, there are four quarters, and the healthcare piece was one quarter. Um, and now healthcare is still piece of recovery, and we're going to talk about that, but there's so many other components. So today we're going to talk about some of those other components um, and what it takes really to keep people uh, sober long term. So with that, um, we have an excellent panel here. Um, to my right... Eric McIntyre, uh, Assistant Director of Recovery Support Services for Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health Institute for Prevention and Recovery, big, big one, Uh, focused on long-term prevention and recovery as well as training development. Eric um, has worked on these issues for more than a decade um, and now advocates within his union um, to support recovery. So we're going to talk a little bit about work, uh, how we support people in work. Um, Ken Pecoraro, Pecoraro, uh, Director of Addiction and Co-Occurring Services at CPC Behavioral Healthcare, which was founded in 1960 in Monmouth, uh, it's based in Monmouth County, um, focused on integrated care, and they are one of the lucky ones to receive millions of federal dollars to do a pilot program that I'm going to get him to talk a little bit about. Um, Bob Robert Budsock. Bob Budzak, president and CEO of Integrity House. Uh, It's now operating for 50 years uh, to treat adults and adolescents with substance use disorders. It's one of the largest nonprofits uh, with residential outpatient supportive housing and they do some very unique work to address folks um, coming out of the prison system. So we'll hear a little bit about uh, unique populations and some of the challenges involved. Last but certainly not least, uh, Dr. Petros Lavunas. Lavonis, uh, chair of the psychiatry department at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, chief uh, chief of service at University Hospital in Newark. Um, he's been involved in inpatient, outpatient services for SUDs um, and other behavioral health problems um, at Robert at uh, in his capacity in both both of those institutions. Um, who's not here today, you may notice, Senator Vitale had a child care emergency. This is now the second panel, he's ducked out on us. So, just I'm just saying, um, he owes us big time. You will see Senator Vitale here in the future. In any case, um, so that's, that's where we're starting. I'm gonna hand my mic over to Eric and we're gonna take a few minutes just to hear from them about what sort of brings them to the table, specifically related to recovery.
5: All right, thank you. My name is Eric McIntyre. Uh, I'm in recovery for a little over 15 years now from alcohol and drug abuse. Um, I guess now I'm at the stage in my life where I'm like an old timer. Mentally, I feel like I'm a newcomer. Um, what, how I look at recovery for myself is, I, you know, I've been doing this for uh, a, a little while now. I'm not a first-time winner. I've been to many different facilities, many different jails. My active addiction was very brutal. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I always try to read my audience and I'm gonna say something even though this isn't the audience to say and I'm gonna say it anyway. I don't come from a background of what's being broadcasted mostly. You know, I wasn't the, the quarterback football player dating a cheerleader, had an injury and took some pills and graduated to heroin. You know, I'm a victim of very bad decisions rough upbringing, and just, uh, you know, wasn't really being watched over as, as a young And then I grew up with just a mother, you know, no father, and it wasn't, you know, I don't put no blame on her whatsoever, but it's just, there's so many, how there's many different pathways to recovery, there's also many different pathways to active addiction and being caught up in it, you know. And I respect every pathway on both, both avenues to, to the addiction to the recovery. Um, it just shows you that anybody can get it, you know, on both ends. And how, you know, my my first introduction to any type of recovery was, you know, coming from uh, going to court and uh, coming out of a weekend stay or a 30-day stay and being suggested to go to certain types of treatment centers and then being forced in. And, you know, little by little you start hearing things. You're not there for the right reasons. You're there to kill a case. You're there to... Appease somebody, you know, to get back in the house, get my girl back, and all, all that nonsense. But little by little, you start hearing things, and it's just when the pain gets great enough, you really start giving it a shot. And it wasn't until I really gave it one hell of a shot, and I said, "Let me try to just really do what they're telling me to do," and then I was failing, and and I couldn't get it. I, I said, "You know, I'm," and then I, mentally, I just wanted to accept it. You know what? This is who I am. It's what I'm destined to be, and. It was like a weight was lifted off me, but I was still just living foul, you know? A lot of criminal activities, which, uh, you know, I guess I'm part of the problem of where the stigma came from. You know, I'm, I was the guy that you would read about, you know? I was doing horrible criminal activities, and I, did, I didn't break the one golden rule. I didn't give up, you know? I would always try again, try again, try again, and, uh, you know, I, I wound up uh, working a program of my own, and... Getting a little bit stuffed together, you know, I, I had nowhere to go at the time. I wound up getting a job landscaping, we were cutting grass, you know, and it's something like, this is where like the ego of mine had to be put aside. Even though I was 130 pounds, homeless, with a pocket full of warrants, I still had an ego for some reason, which was absurd, but... I had to get a job landscaping and uh, it was me and two guys that uh, they didn't speak English but we were cutting grass for this, uh, you know, for the owner, for the boss and we're cutting grass on this beautiful million dollar home where I grew up in Staten Island and prior to being in my very rough act of addiction, I was, uh, I was a drug dealer, you know, so I had that ego and so we're cutting this, this house and you know, you got to cut it in sequence, you got to make it look nice, you go sideways. And the guys that came out of the house used to sell drugs for me. And uh, they looked at me, they said, Eric, what are, what are you doing? You know, what are you on, like work release or something? And I was like so mortified. And uh, I didn't know the difference between the word humiliated and, and being humble, you know. I was humiliated at the time. I wanted to, you know, smack the owner of the landscape company, rip these people out of the house, take the Benz out of the driveway. It's all mine. I'm, I'm back, you know. And, you uh, I continued, I said, no, I'm just trying to get my act together here. And I ignored it, and I stayed. I put the little Ghostbusters blower machine on afterwards, blew the grass (laughs) off, and did what I did. And I just kept on trucking. And uh, it was the first time in my life I went against what my first reaction was. you know. And uh, I just continued on. From then, I was able to reinstate a union book that I got. And when you start working a program, and any type of program, any type of recovery program... When you start working a program of your own, you start excelling very quickly, which is a little scary. and That's why people usually wish you a slow recovery. I was getting everything, and I was working hard, and now I'm working in the city, and I'm running the, you know, I was running the United Nations, one of the biggest jobs going in the city. I had like 900 people working for me, and things were just going good, and I started letting the things that, you know, it gave me take me away from what was keeping me right. And uh, luckily, I had a very strong foundation. I have burnt every bridge prior to that, so anybody in my life had to do with recovery. And still to this day, 90 percent of the people in my life have to do with recovery. But uh, working in this field now, you know, working for RWJ Barnabas Health Institute for Prevention and Recovery long title, but I love mm-hmm. saying it because I love being there. Um, I made the decision about three years ago. Uh, I was moving from one job to another, I was doing per diem shifts for this. The ORP program, which was you know when we were dealing with Narcan reversals only, uh, I made the decision to actually not go to the next construction job, and financially that was the worst decision in my life. But <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I mean, I worked for the you, know, I could just go back, and uh, I did it, and I didn't look back. I've never been happy. I'm still a volunteer MAP, which is Members Assistance Program. I'm still a dues-paying member, so people who have problems in my union, they call me, and I used to attend every union meeting. I'm not shy, I have a very big mouth, I scream, I curse at the union meeting, everybody knows my, my story, a lot of them saw it, and heard about it, or read about it, so, you know, we don't have control over the back of our insurance card, so our union members could go wherever they want, and they weren't calling us until I started going on stage screaming and yelling, say, hey, call me, we're going to get through this together, we're going to get you to the proper placement, and since then, we've been getting a lot of calls, you know, so it's really about being transparent about who you are and what, what your goal is and, uh, you know, but real quick, going to where I am now, the assistant director for the peer recovery program, all the, the issues that everybody will mention, everybody talks about, I mean, I know a lot of people in the room, I think, and not just because I'm the assistant director of it, the, the recovery part, the, the strong part that's been missing and is here now is the peers, to walk them through the process. All the levels of care that everybody fight for, oh, there's not enough detox beds, there's not enough inpatient, not enough outpatient, not enough transportation. If you hand walk, they're all there, but they're all separate. You know, that's when everybody talks about the silos. You know, A lot of places have most of them combined, but to be hand walked and watched and talked throughout and supported throughout the whole process until you reach the, the five-year mark where the, the ratio is going to change and all that stuff that Mario was talking about, we need to support one another, you know? I don't, I don't discriminate anybody's background, where they came from, what they did. It's, you know, not, not guilty before, let's work from this day on. I had the luxury of taking my family to uh, a, a play called uh, Anytown last night. It was out in Tom's River. It's a high school musical, and uh, it's about, you know, about addiction, about how the progression from pills to, to heroin and uh, how it affects people in high school. I took my 14-year-old there. I didn't know how he was going to take it. You know, he knows what I do for a living. I'm very honest with him. Plus, it was in the papers. You know They see me. Um, so I keep, can't really hide it if I wanted to. That, that anonymous way by bye a while ago. Um, I wasn't sure he was, how he was going to accept it. I had my 14-year-old. That was one thing. And then I have a, a, a very good friend of mine and his son, who's 22-year-old, who's struggling. He's in and out of 15 different treatment centers in the past year and a half. I had them both there. And to listen to them afterwards and just, they said, you know, you guys, uh, my son, he's my son, so I had a lot of arguments with him just getting him there. But the 22-year-old, my friend's son, he said, you guys are starting to get it, you know, and he's one who's in the thick of it right now. You know, relapsed three days ago, just in and out, it's such a shame. And and my friend is saying, I don't want to bury my son. I said he needs the support, so I'm bringing him... Everywhere possible, getting him involved. I got to get kids his age. Mentally, I think I'm his age, so we're hanging out, talking. I said, oh, wait, that's right. I got to get somebody younger. He's young enough to be my son now. Um, you yeah, know, I'm rambling on a little bit, but I just want to say how much I love recovery, and I'm sure I'll grab the mic again and bounce back after everybody else speaks a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
6: Hi, my name's Ken Pecoraro, um, um, so let me start by saying I'm really grateful to be here, it's an awesome panel to be part of. It's very nostalgic for me to be here, It's where I went to school for both uh, undergraduate and graduate, and uh, just being here is like, uh, even pulling up, you know, the traffic, Route 18, all that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, some flashbacks, PTSD, but you know, but, uh, but being here, you know, what it made me think, actually, when I was sitting in here, when we were uh, getting ready, about this was where I decided to do what I do now. I just, that was uh, over 25 years ago. And uh, I remember, I've grown up around uh, dysfunctional situations my whole life, mental health, substance use. It's been around me, you know, socially, family-wise. And I was always that guy that, people just wanted to come to, you know, the, the three in the morning call, hey, Ken, come get me, I'm in jail, or hey, uh, I'm going to kill myself. You know, I was always, so I said to myself, I remember, I was in school here, and I said, you know what, I'm doing this anyway, I might as well get paid for it. So I, uh, I pursued a degree in psychology for uh, my bachelor's, and I went for social work, and uh, I, I loved, loved it, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. And I started right into the addiction field uh, in the early 90s, And I'm really grateful for the uh, opening remarks because she's hopefully set the tone for what we're going to talk about with recovery here. Because in the last being in this field for over 25 years, it's amazing how much it has evolved and how different it was. It is since back in the 90s. When I first started, here I was this guy in his 20s. And um, it was very experientially based. Everybody all of my uh, my peers, as far as counselors, had tons of experience, and it was very expert-based. It was, this is the way you recover. I'm going to show you the way to recover, and if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you, you know, and the patients were all getting kicked out. And I can re- even remember being like, I was fascinated with the people that were getting kicked out of the programs. I was like, what about this guy who, like, refuses to, you know, to do whatever, refuses to change his friends, refuses to go to the meetings? Like the, the outliers were, from a, from an early start, I was like... Why are we kicking this guy out? Doesn't this guy need or girl need more help? So, I had a big problem with that from the start, and uh, I would, so I jumped from job to job, you know, six months here, a year there, and uh, I knew why well, this is what I wanted to do, but it just I wasn't finding the right place where to do it, and then in two thousand and one I came to CPC Behavioral Healthcare, which I still am now. hid there now, um, been there since uh, for seventeen years now, and CPC is a place where some of the things we're going to talk about we've been doing it before it was it was uh, you know in vogue as far as uh, you know media wise as in terms of accepting doing client centered treatment you know accepting people letting the client be the expert about themselves and accepting the fact that people recover different ways there's, there's all sorts of th- stories. And one thing I learned about a counselor, it's funny, somebody re- recently asked me on the, on an internet question, they were like, what's one lesson you learned as a counselor? I've learned many, but the one that came to my head right off the bat was, you know, you never, you, you, you can never trust the fact that you're gonna predict what's gonna happen. You There's people who I were, uh, you know, cause we're, in, it, we're human beings, we get that person for the intake and you say to yourself, oh man, you know, no way. This one, is, oh man, too many, you know, shot out, too many problems, no. And that person can blow you away. And then you get the person who's got it all, you know, you think everything's in place, all their ducks in a row, and then, you know, that becomes the the nightmare that you're, you know, getting phone calls about all day and all night. So you never really know. So, I mean, part of being a counselor is putting that judgment on the side and going, you know, getting into people's world and being empathetic. So CPC, um, uh, as far as being being an integrated uh, care center, using mental health, and addiction together, treating them as one united thing. And now we're at what's called a CCBHC, a certified community behavioral health clinic, which is is integrating now uh, medical care as well. So putting the three together, treating the whole person. So hopefully, we're going to talk more about what recovery is, and because it is very different. And um, it's uh, it's it's fortunate now that the that the world is coming around and seeing that. You know we need to help everybody that comes for help, not just the people that fit into the 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 track. It, it used to be very much based on an ideal model. You know we we had we had uh, we wanted the person that came into treatment. You know back in the 90s, you wanted the person that came to treatment. They were going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, change all their friends, uh, you know, do every every textbook thing. You, and and it turns out you know people don't change that way. And one of the examples I bring up that everybody can relate to suppose you. Uh, you went to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor told you you have a disease like diabetes, for example. And the doctor gives you a list of things to do. So you know, that expert based thing, well, oh, you have diabetes, I know exactly what you need to do. You need to lose 50 pounds, you got to eat salad instead of going to McDonald's, you got to work out, you got to take these pills, fish oil, all these things and whatever. And he gives you the list and you go home and you're really psyched. You go back in, in whatever, two weeks, a month, and how many things on the list did you really do? You know what I mean? And we're supposed to be the, the functional people that are you know able to do all these things you know maybe you know you told you to lose 50 pounds maybe you lost three you know maybe you went to mcdonald's uh twice instead of going five times so that's how we change so why should we expect clients to change the same way and coming from all kinds of uh backgrounds disabilities and things like that as well so we're going to hand them a list of things to do and say here do it and then they come back and you know in a week and you're like what you didn't do all the things i told you to do you know so that's, a, a, that, that's a, where, I, where I'm coming from. Um, I'm gonna pass it on to the next person, but again, thanks for having me, and uh, pass it on to Bob. <laughs> All right. Thank you. thank you, Ken.
7: Thank you, Eric, for sharing your story, and thank you, Marielle, um, and also thank you, uh, New Jersey Spotlight, for this opportunity to, to be part of this discussion. So, uh, as, as Lila said, my name's Bob Budsock. I'm the president and CEO of Integrity House. Um, I'm very proud that Integrity House is celebrating our 50th anniversary. I have a a big button here with a big 50 on it, which my 15-year-old daughter tells me, dad, that's a little extra. Does anyone know what that means, a little extra? It means a little over the top, a little too loud. So, um, but I'm very proud about our our, our 50-year anniversary. We started in Newark, New Jersey back in 1968. It was one year after the Newark uprising and, um, and we started with a single house in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, a single house and four clients, and the founder of Integrity House moved into that house with the four clients and decided that uh, they were gonna try to figure out how to, how to live a better life and, and not return to drug use. Over the past 50 years, Integrity House has expanded tremendously. Um, We started with the one house, and we now, um, we we have over 420 licensed residential addiction treatment beds. Uh, We have a campus in Newark, a campus in Secaucus, also outpatient sites in Jersey City, Morris Plains, Tom's River. Um, We're the third party... Operator of addiction treatment services, we operate an 84-bed detox at Newbridge Medical Center. We also have a program inside the Hudson County Correctional Center. So, starting with four individuals and an owner that had a vision and a passion, you know, back 50 years ago, we've really learned a lot over the course of 50 years. Uh, We, in all those locations, between all those locations, we offer every level of care from detox, long-term, residential, short-term, partial care outpatient, intensive outpatient, regular outpatient. Um, We're also doing some prevention services in uh, greater Newark School District, uh, and we also do some supportive housing. So. We, um, over the past 50 years, we've looked to expand the types of services that we offer and also to expand our reach to get deeper into the communities where the folks uh, are coming from. So, although we started in Newark, <clears throat> we receive referrals from all 21 counties. Folks will come from Cape May, from Camden, Ocean County, Hudson County, they all come to our residential sites, and then they go back into their home communities. And we either have partnerships in those local communities where we continue care, um, or Integrity House has a site in that area to continue care. Um, We believe deeply in holistic care. And when we say holistic care, we're talking about uh, addiction treatment, which is the primary reason for people coming to Integrity House. Also, um, mental health treatment in primary health care. And, and when, in addition to that, when I see holistic care, it's also taking to, into account, um, taking a look at the person and seeing what kind of help they need within uh, job readiness and employment placement, taking a look at their education, their level of education, and, and how could we help them further their education, whether it's getting a high school diploma or, or moving on to a college program. Taking a look at housing, uh, dental needs, legal needs—really, you know, wrapping your arms around someone and, and, and making sure what we take pride in at Integrity House. We feel that if somebody comes to our organization, that um, that they're really going to be um, they're going to be set for life. And, and I'm, I'm, when I say set for life, that is. What a client said to me when I was describing their program. And, and it was like, once you come in the door, we're going to take care of everything for you, either directly or we're going to connect. Now, long-term recovery, five years, Mariel. So after five years, right, you have an 85% chance of staying clean, right? And, and, and one of the concerns that I have, can I talk about a concern right now, Lilo? So one of the concerns that I have is that, um, you know, there is this drive that is occurring to, uh, to shorten lengths of stay in treatment and also to make sure that individuals are in the least restrictive level of care possible. So, you know, that may sound good when you're, you know, sitting around a table making policy, but then what you need to realize is that we, we work with people. And we work with people that have needs, and and, and sometimes, I know when I'm working with folks, I'd rather have a longer length of stay. I'd rather have a more intense level of care. You know, the, the current opiate epidemic is it's a modern health crisis that we're experiencing right now. Eight people are going to die today in New Jersey as a result of a opiate overdose. And, and at the same time, we're getting pressure from insurance companies, from Medicaid, whoever the payer of services is. Um, they are pushing us for shorter lengths of stay and the least intensive level of care possible. Now, I understand where it's coming from back in the 70s and the 80s. I've been with Integrity House for 33 years. So I wasn't around in the 70s, but I was around in the 80s. And, um, and back in those days, uh, there were a lot of these 28-day programs that were opening up. And, and really, the idea, 28 days came from the maximum payment that you can get from an insurance company. It wasn't really clinically driven. It was based upon getting as much money as possible uh, for providing the addiction treatment services. So so we went from that and then over the years the pendulum has swung to the point where there's a lot of scrutiny over uh, the intensity of care and the length of stay that an individual is eligible for in a facility. And, uh, and, and and that's a big concern of mine. And, um, and I'm going to tell you a brief story. A brief story. So Integrity House, our campus in Newark, we have 14 buildings in Newark. We have 10 buildings right around Lincoln Park in Newark. And we also have a couple buildings a block or two away from our main campus. So between my office in the uh, building that we call the Harrison Williams Job Readiness Academy. That's where we do medical admissions, job readiness, and education in this building. In between my office and that building is South Street. South Street is a corridor between the Pennington Avenue projects and Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, Pennsylvania Avenue is drug dealing and prostitution. Pennington Avenue uh, projects is just drug dealing. So um, a couple weeks ago, I encountered a woman walking down South Street as I was walking to my building to another building. Uh, Her name is, I saw her walking down the street, and I said to her, do you need help? And I just, I knew it was someone that needed help. Um, And she stopped, and she spoke to me for a couple minutes. And she said, yes, I need help. And in fact, my boyfriend went through Integrity House, and he's doing well now, uh, but I'm not ready to go into a program and get any help you know her name was amy she was from old bridge new jersey Um, she said that her goal is really to get clean and to regain custody of her son that her parents were taking care of her son Um, she said that she was in newark she's from old bridge but she was living in newark i don't know if she had a house but she was living in newark just to be closer to her dealer um, that she was unemployed and that, you know, she has tried some waitresses, waitress jobs from time to time, but currently she was unemployed um, and she was a high school dropout. So I saw Amy a couple weeks ago. I saw Amy again yesterday and I saw it on South Street and it was about 7.45 in the morning. I was going to a board meeting and, um, and I said, Amy, are you ready? Um, and she said, she told me, she says, I, I, she says I'm going to die if I don't get into a program. And, and so basically, I, you know, uh, told her where to go, who to speak to. Um, and, you know, she's agreed, and this is what happens with many people, that she is going to okay. show up today to enter into the program. So, so the first time I saw Amy, she told me, the reason she had to end her conversation so quickly is that she had she, she told me after we spoke for five minutes that she has her heroin with her right now and she's going to shoot her heroin. And she's going to shoot it behind the dollar store on Clinton Avenue. So if, if people are familiar with Newark, you'll know what I'm talking about with these neighborhoods. But. Um, so she was going behind a dollar store and what she described to me is that, um, does anybody know where the dollar store is on Clinton Avenue next to McDonald's? Okay. So behind that dollar store, she said that, um, I'm like, what you, you can't go there, you're going to die. And she said, um, "She says, she says, I know. She says I, I have to step over bodies, and that doesn't mean dead bodies. But I have to step over bodies to go get to my spot to use my drugs. And you know, every other day they're finding somebody dead behind the dollar store. So, so it's kind of my heart was breaking. So let me get back to my original concern. So my concern is the shorter lengths of stay, right?" and the pressure for the lower intensity services. So I hope that Amy shows up today, but I could tell you that, you know, here's Amy chronically addicted to heroin, homeless as far as I know. Um, She was missing teeth in the front. She had an open sore on her arm, which was probably from shooting up. She probably has mental health issues. Um, and, And this is just... 5 minutes on on the sidewalk what I'm seeing. And what's going to happen is that um, we're going to get Amy into care, but we're going to have a constant struggle. We're going to be battling with whether it's Medicaid or the insurance company because they're going to want to get this done quickly. And there is no qu- quick fix. And really somebody like Amy, also she didn't have a high school diploma. So, you know, we need to help her with her education, with her health care, with her mental health care. Um, just so many needs to help her uh, put her life back together. And I just, you know, when I was kind of putting together a couple things to say today, uh, I actually put it together, you know, Tuesday night. And then I saw Amy yesterday. And I'm like, you know, uh, it, it's something that it just touches my heart when I see somebody, you know. I mean, like when, when you see her walking down the street, you you realize that, You know, she is not your suburban housewife that is addicted to oxycodone. This is someone that is severely addicted to heroin. And she, you know, she is a mother. She has a child. She's a daughter. She has parents. And and, and I just hope that our, our, our system recognizes that folks need long-term care. It doesn't need to be long-term residential care for the whole time. I think Amy could benefit from a three-month residential stay just based on what I saw uh, on that sidewalk. But then after that, you know, outpatient treatment and recovery support to get her through the first couple years of recovery. So that's my concern. Thank you for letting me share. Okay. <laughs>
8: Um, I'm Petros Levounis, and uh, thank you for having me on this panel with uh, these other great speakers. Um, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and one of the things that uh, I want to talk about is how medicine traditionally has been looking at illness as an event, that this just happened, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to fix it, and the person is going to be okay. And uh, a few humbling things have happened over the past few years, HIV being a major one, uh, but also hypertension, diabetes, uh, that have shown us that every illness has a before, during, and an after uh, part, and all these three components need major attention. Even things that in the past I would think were just events, like a fracture, you break your arm, Uh, do have a before part, how come you broke that arm, what's going on at home, are you an elderly person with rugs everywhere, and uh, uh, so on, and of course what's going to happen after, after I fix that fracture, what's going to happen in terms of physical therapy, in terms of changing your environment, and so on, so pretty much all illness has now we're trying to educate ourselves to look at illness as having three components to it and being much more longitudinal. Now, this has uh, been happening, uh, but not in addiction. Somehow, in addiction, we still have the expectation. Uh, we talked about expectations from our patients, which are through the roof, and I couldn't agree more with you, but also we we'll have uh, through the roof expectations for the physicians and, and for the providers in terms of addiction. Um, let me give you an example with that. Let's say uh, you have high blood pressure, and I give you an antihypertensive, I give you a blood pressure medication, and your blood pressure goes down, and you are now at normal 120 over 80. And then I stop giving you the medication, and your blood pressure goes through the roof again. Would most people say this was a good medication or a bad medication? Most of us would say it was a good medication. It did the job. You had high blood pressure. I gave you the medication. You dropped it. Then I stopped the medication and your blood pressure went up again. Not the same with addiction. You're addicted. I come and give you buprenorphine, suboxone. You stopped being, uh, uh, using the drugs. You're doing great. I stopped the buprenorphine. I stopped giving you the medication. And boom, you relapse. We don't think that the medication did a good job. Somehow the expectation is that the medication is going to go in there, change something in your mind, throw the addiction out the window once and for all, and from that point you'll be happy-go-lucky for the rest of your life. It doesn't happen that way. Most of the interventions that we have, the successful interventions that we have, psychotherapy and counseling and medications and 12-step programs and recovery projects, all that do need to stay for some time, for some significant amount of time, years perhaps, in order to do the job. And that is not something that is being appreciated. Um, In terms of the the work that we do at uh, New Jersey Medical School, I'm very proud of several things that we have put in place for the opioid epidemic, uh, from our Naloxone distribution to our uh, starting patient treatment at the emergency department as soon as somebody uh, found has overdosed and survived the overdose then we start the buprenorphine right there and we hook them up with a clinic our own clinic uh, the same day which I think is is fantastic. Uh, July we're starting the first addiction medicine fellowship in the state of New Jersey and we're currently working on a lot of uh, um, uh, diversity inclusion issues. Um, I see a lot of A lot of whiteness here, a lot of maleness here. Uh, I'm not sure about the straightness, but (laughs) (laughs) that's a a plus minus part. (laughs) But. uh, (laughs) So, uh, this is certainly something we're working on um, right now. But the thing I'm most proud of is that uh, we're the first medical school in the country that requires that every single medical student before she or he graduates will be certified to be able to provide buprenorphine treatment, to provide opioid treatment. And um, uh, Yes, we, we, we beat Brown University at the punchline. You know, they were just, we're, we're ahead of them. So uh, with that, I just want to stop here and um, answer questions along with the panelists.
4: Thank you. I think there's a second mic there. This one's this one works very well, though. Um, thank you. So this is I was taking notes because uh, you know this is it's, this I, I feel like we have a wealth of knowledge here. Um, so uh, as we go through it, I'm thinking there there's sort of a number of things that everybody's hit upon um, that are sort of ingredients of of long-term recovery. Um, you know, integrated care in the fact of uh, ca- uh, care that addresses both chronic diseases, mental health, behavioral health of the whole spectrum, as well as physical concerns. Um, I feel like ongoing MAT, or an MAT that's actually a maintenance program, um, we talked about you know the need for obviously work, skills, jobs, um, housing, stable housing, all these pieces. How do you measure, I'm thinking, how do you, so how do you measure success on all these different pieces? Because it seems to me almost overwhelming if the goal is to, you know, for someone like Amy, for example, let's take her as an example, Um, you know, if if you're talking about the suburban housewife, you know, Theoretically, she's still going to have a home to go home home to, unless it's you know going to be repossessed or you know something dramatic. Um, but what about Amy? I mean, how how do you how do you get there, and how what constitutes a success with that? Bob, I'm going to start with you, if if you can. So
7: So in in a case like that. Um, we would look at uh, outcomes related to uh, drug use. Um, we would, you know expect that there would be no continued drug use to be a success. Um, we would want uh, Amy to either have a full-time educational experience, whether that be, um, you know, pursuing her high school education or college education or a full-time work experience and also uh living in safe affordable supportive housing um so we we actually these are outcomes that you know the the state of new jersey because we receive federal funding um we have to report on these national outcome measures and every organization that receives state funding, such as Integrity House, we have to report, you know, is the individual abstinent? Are they employed or in school full time? And do they have secure housing? Um, and, and those are, are, are key areas. We also, um, and, and other success would be you know, improved health, in terms of you know, the physical, the, the co-occurring physical health uh, conditions that the individual is experiencing
8: I just want us to be a little careful here with um, all these wonderful services that we are offering to our patients uh, if Amy does all that stuff wonderful there's a good chance to be a success story check for us uh, our outcome measures are great what if Amy comes in and says I only want to see a counselor once a month to just have a little chat and I don't want anything else Clearly, Amy will have less of a chance of success and your rates, your outcome measures are going to go down the drain. Much, much easier to say, oops, that's not what we offer here. We're not on that, for that, in that kind of business here. We're in the business of offering wraparound services, of offering all these wonderful things that we have. And if you don't want it, you know, my way or the highway. And that is very problematic for a lot of, of, of our patients. And we do see that. We do see programs who require way too many things that the patients cannot afford, either from time or money or anything else, to, to subscribe to. Um, so I think it's, it's criminal when you say, I'm only going to give you buprenorphine if you also go to the groups and the hard chairs and the things that drive you crazy and you do all that stuff. And vice versa. I'm not going to accept you to the group unless you go and see the psychiatrist and you get on medication for your bipolar disorder and this and this and that. These kind of things that sound a little extreme do happen day in and day out, and they do improve outcomes. If you do require all these things, you weed out all the people who are not going to go to the entire program, and you end up with higher scores for your own program, which is not a good idea.
6: That's a great example, the, how you said that Amy, the, that case, What of this hypothetical situation now, uh, wanted to come once a week, uh, once a month. So I'm in agreement, you know, at CPC where we work, we'd have her come in the once a month. You know, I've had many times where I've done an intake and said, you know, really you should be in IOP, and you know, and the, but you know what? You know, Amy says to me, no, I'm only coming once a month. Come in the door once a month, Now, but now you're in our care. She's in our care, and we, uh, at, we train our counselors in motivational interviewing, being engaging, and now you got her that once a month to work on, and she's forming relationships with the counselor, and she might relapse, and, and when she relapses, she says, you know what, okay, maybe I will try that program. So, but you, that's what's what starting where the patient is, you know, and, and uh, you know, like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, you know, you get what you can. And back to your original que- uh, comment about success. I mean my answer to that would be success is a very individualized thing. You know, I could ask every one of you here what you think is success and what you think success is for your for your children even. So somebody might say, "Oh, you know, I'm successful. I have a Mercedes-Benz and I have this much money in the bank." And that's where that's that's where their definition of success is. And another person, well, this is my career achievement. But there might be another person who's who is the, I know the cashier at 7-Eleven or something, and you know I live a moral life and I, you know I, and I, I'm taking care of my family. I'm a success. So it's the same thing in recovery where I think of one patient I had, who, uh, she was coming to me. She said, uh, you know, she was sexually abused from a young age, and she started doing crystal meth and heroin at age 12, hardcore. And she was attractive, and she went right, right into the, the sex business from a young age, went from uh, just doing whatever into pornography, and all and she was coming to me, and again, we would, that's a person who probably should have been in IOP, but she just, individual is all, all I want, I want to see the doctor as well, and she was my patient, and she used to call herself sober, and she was on methadone, and she smoked weed every day, and she had a Xanax prescription that. She um, said she wasn't abusing, you know, she wasn't sedated or anything. But uh, she used to call herself sober, and the reason why she said, because I haven't used heroin or crystal meth in over a year. I've been prostituted, I haven't been arrested, I haven't been in jail, I can speak to my family, I can live in my house, I'm employable. So, and, you know, somebody might look at her and go, wow, you know, she's a mess, you know, but no. That's success. That's a person, and and hopefully it doesn't end there with her. But again, getting back to that, where success is defined from within.
5: Yeah, I like that, that theory a lot better because there's certain scenarios when you're getting funding from different areas. There's measurements that you have to do, but with the program that we work with recovery specialists, it's I like to know. You know, I would like to know for Amy's uh, situation. I'd like to know what type of music Amy listens to. I'd like to know what type of meeting she's enjoying or she's not having, you know, a good time with. And getting to know the individual, and that's where it's individually based and where recovery is, you know, it's a personal factor. I mean, my recovery and my, my first uh, attempt at it was beyond frowned upon, you know. Um, I, I don't think that uh, you could put measurements, just engagement alone. You know, if she's only agreeing to do once a, a month therapy, she's got a better chance of excelling being in there than just saying no to everything. So they got to be accepted. And, uh, and I think with, uh, you know, with us, what well, we have the peer support and, you know, not just with the, the ones in the hospital, we just have the star programs and they're in a lot of counties, just engagement with these individuals that you could continue on trying to find out what the wants and needs are. You know, that's, that's success right there.
4: Thank you. Um one thing, I am thinking, though, about this sort of the integrated care piece and one of, I mean, the integrated healthcare piece. So, um, while I'm, I'm get, you know, there are obviously many clients that are, are resistant to coming into a, a sort of holistic program because it takes them too much out of that element that they're used to. Um, I'm always fascinated by when you're talking on the prevention side or risk reduction side about stories of needle exchange programs where people go and suddenly they're getting care for their diabetes or they're getting care for a a chronic skin condition or something. So let's talk a little bit about that healthcare, that other healthcare piece and how, how important is it when you're talking I mean, my, my understanding is the numbers are sort of off the charts when you talk about numbers of people with co-occurring disorders, particularly behavioral health needs. I mean, how does that, how, how do you make that part of the, the picture? Um, do you want to start, Petros? I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like when, when someone comes into the, 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 the emergency room, for yeah. example, how do you, how do you yeah. make that holistic?
8: Chances are that the patient will not go to four different doctors to get the expert diabetes care and the expert depression care from the psychiatrist and the expert HIV care from the infectious disease specialist. That's whom, what we may want to, to have the patient do. We offer all the services. We're a very big academic center with all these uh, state-of-the-art uh, clinics, but that's not going to happen. So for us, the, the, the thinking has shifted to the primary care physician, the primary uh, nurse practitioner uh, that the patient is going to see and have that one person offer as many services as possible. Um, it's not rocket science. You just uh, assess, you diagnose, and you treat. Depression, addiction. Uh, I, I personally have a little problem with this uh, support services for physicians on how to prescribe buprenorphine or, or how to deal with the addicted patient or how to... If you, if you can deal with this uh, uh, incredibly complex uh, cancer cases and, and all kinds of other medical illnesses, you certainly can deal with the opioid use disorder. It's uh, addiction from addiction. So uh, I, I do think that the answer to the integrated care is uh, primary care, Uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, other clinicians to take charge of uh, the person as a whole and offer as many services as they they can from one single office.
4: Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm thinking about CPC also and and the uh, CCBHC program.
6: Well, when it comes to the medical piece, again, relating it back to just thinking about your own situation, you think about going to the dentist or going to the doctor, how often something else, it depends, there's, it depends, there's different levels with people. Some people are very, you know, the hypochondriac uh, side, you know, go to every appointment, but the usual busy person, there's that morning that comes, you know, I got a dentist appointment today and you weigh to yourself, oh man, do I, you know, I got a busy, busy meeting at work and we cancel. But, the, so when it comes to the patients, just having that person, so part of the CCB, CCBH, CCBHC program at CPC, which is a tongue twister, is the medical case management. Having someone saying, you know what, we're going to drive you to that doctor appointment. Because that could be the, the, just that having a, a case manager get, to pick you up in the morning, pick the client up in the morning, take you to that dentist, could be the difference maker. Because it all sounds well and good when you make the appointment. But then to actually that morning, you know, there's that, oh, man, do I really want to do this? But getting to the person. And then once they get there and in the door, then you're like, you know, when you leave, you're always like, oh, man, I'm, I'm glad I got my teeth cleaned. I'm glad I got that cavity that was, uh, but, you know, had I, had I you, you know, you can remember being on that early in the morning, being on the fence. So the CCBHC program is about medical case management and engagement. And so it's important from the from all the way from the doctor down to the to the volunteer and the case manager is is that we keep it keeps coming up engagement you know hey you know you haven't you haven't you have you know like Amy your teeth are missing well why don't we get you to a dentist you know what, what, what yeah, uh, I don't know how to make an appointment okay let's sit here together on the phone and call and make the appointment together and and uh, you know what let's do it on a day when uh, when the case manager's around and we'll take you and getting people to get care and then again that comes back to that definition of success you know feeling again. She's got her teeth back. And to have, you know, if you ever met somebody who went from no teeth to teeth, they say, what a difference it is. Because we take it for granted. You know, you got your teeth in your mouth and you're, 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 you don't remember to think that everyone you face, every time you smile, you're feeling shame, embarrassment. It's a, you know, it's telling people about your past. So that's would be uh, my view on that.
4: Thank you, Um, and as we talk about getting people into services, I keep thinking of uh, the role that peer specialists and and peer recovery support teams play in this. Um, We had a good question that someone emailed in in advance um, about the, uh, the training and requirements for peer recovery, because I feel like... I mean there are many people in the recovery community who have been through um, the process themselves are in recovery themselves um, and have that first hand knowledge but but not necessarily everybody's qualified to be a recovery specialist so I'm curious how do you how do you screen people how do you target people that work that that, that makes sense for and how you know what kind of requirements are you you know what kind of standards do you, do they need to meet
5: well, first off, working under the state grant, they require two years of actual recovery to be a peer specialist. We at RWJ Barnabas require four years. So as for our training, what we're looking for in an interview is basically somebody being grateful and humble and open-minded enough to accept any pathway, all the pathways to recovery. Because the majority of people that are in recovery that come in for interviews are in some sort of 12-step fellowship. And that's fine. I mean, whatever fellowship they're in is great, but they have to be open-minded to understand that, you know, their way may not be the individual that we're helping's way. And I'll just tell you a a two second story about how I opened my eyes, because I was very tunnel vision in the beginning. You know, I I came from a disaster of the past to living a, a decent life. And my very first day working for R.W.J. Barnabas Health, we went, took a field trip to a methadone clinic and talking about that's in recovery. And I was hell-bent on my 12-step brain, and I said, this is not recovery. I know uh, know it's a mind-altering substance, and I went through all that. And I had to take a step back. Uh, you know, it took a little while to break my uh, thick-headed thought, but I look at it like this. It's First off, this opioid epidemic is so drastic. They're, they're literally dying. You know what I mean? It's not like, ah, oh, they're living rough. They're literally dying. So it used to be back in the the olden days, you had to hit bottom before you get help, you know, before you accept help. And now, you know, bottom being here and death being here, they're dying long before they even know what bottom is. They're dying in, you know, all, all across the country and, and especially New Jersey. And I said, you know what, I already believe in medication Medication assisted treatment because we're helping people get into an inpatient detox. The length of stay to detox is up to the medical professionals, not me. Sometimes they'll go into a two, three-day detox. Sometimes it'll be ambulatory two, three weeks, you know, and they're coming out on different medications. That's not my specialty. So when they come out on gabapentin and and all this other stuff that I'm not familiar with, you know, I'm not educated, I'm not a medical professional. And I I started saying to myself, who the hell am I to say what somebody needs in medicine, you know? And then actually dealing with these individuals and working with them and, and being in recovery with them. And I started trying to teach my other staff about it and saying, it's like when somebody was in jail or in in an inpatient treatment center and they come out and they're making some sort of peer-led meeting and they're counting their days and they're saying, well, I got 14 days inside and then I got 17 here. I don't know if I should count them. Can I count this? They're not my days to count. They're your days to count. You're in recovery. God bless you. Let's stay in recovery together. You know, so, but really back... Back to the training. I mean, the the C car is a very big part of it, and uh, then the ethics training, which is even, in my opinion, a, a, a stronger component of it. There's mental health training. There's uh, you know, there's there's um, uh, we're, we're learning about needle exchange and, and harm reduction. Um, and it changed. We you know we have a lot of lessons learned. We have a whole list of scenarios that one would have to go through for the training to be applicable to be with us and uh, we keep them in house for a month and with a lot of shadowing because our recovery specialist is a little different than the regular peers that are out there we're actually based inside our hospitals 24-7 dealing with any substance use disorder that comes into the hospital and we're getting them right at bedside so the approach to somebody who's been a Narcan reversal in the emergency room is different than the approach that we're doing somebody up on the floors that got identified under the PMP, which is the prescription monitoring program, you know. So we're training them on that with a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot, of, a lot of acting that we, we do in house, and uh, you know, um, we we try to do role playing and different scenarios that we've already encountered to prep somebody else for. But as for coming in for an interview, being humble, being grateful, being open-minded, those are the main scenarios.
8: Anybody else? Can I just make a comment because we brought up detox, um, a three-day detox or something like that. Almost always a very bad idea. Uh, We lose most of our patients when they're doing the best. What I mean by that is somebody's using, 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 they come to a detox center, they keep them there for three days, they send them out without any medication, without anything, and then two or three weeks later the person relapses. But by that time, they have lost their tolerance to the opioids. You see, when you are using, you using, you develop all this tolerance. So eight bags of heroin are just enough to keep you from withdrawing, and they're just fine. But if you do this three-day detox, and then you leave the detox without anything on you, and you relapse three weeks later, and you try to have eight bags of heroin, now you're dead. And that is is very real. There's a seminal article that, uh, that came out in our literature, Death by Detox which I think it's a very apt uh, 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 title to to this article. So these detox centers that offer these quick fixes, very bad idea.
4: Is that is so is the problem there the three-day detox itself? Is it the not having connecting to other services? Is it
8: the... the... Doing detox instead of doing an induction into buprenorphine instead of starting the patient on a medication that will keep them safe. Instead of doing maintenance, which is the right thing, you do detoxification, which is just dropping somebody down to zero uh, with, a, with a fantasy that the person will just be, again, as we said before, uh, opioid-free and addiction-free and happy and depression-free and trauma-free and all the wonderful things that are going to be happening from then on.
4: Does um, I'm thinking of the fellowship programs and 12 Steps. How did those... How do those fit into the picture? Um, And and are they in conflict necessarily, as Eric was saying, with MAT? I mean, is that that coming together now? Yeah.
7: So um, my personal philosophy and also the philosophy of Integrity House is that, um, first of all, detox is not treatment. Let me go back to that. Detox is just a brief medical intervention that hopefully is going to lead to treatment um, a- after detox. Um, and now the MAT is definitely the, the the gold standard for opiate use disorders. It's 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 really you know it, it's a major breakthrough. Well, you shouldn't say it's a major breakthrough because you know we've had methadone for a really long time. Um, We we started using methadone at Integrity House about 20 years ago. And we recently started, probably about 10, 12 years ago, we started with uh, buprenorphine and most recently Vivitrol. Um, So part of an individual's recovery plan, so they receive treatment. In addition to treatment um, and making sure that they're getting the uh, addiction treatment, the mental health care, the physical health care, the other piece is that they're developing a support network that is going to help them sustain their recovery, <laughs> and that is their social support, their uh, family support, their spiritual support. So for, for folks that uh, choose to go the route of like an AA or an NA fellowship, um, and they're on MAT, um, that sometimes is a challenge for them. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a challenge for them is because many of the folks, and these are many folks at AA meetings and NA meetings, and I don't want anyone to take offense to this, but they um, have been around a long time and they consider someone that's on MAT not to be fully recovered. And, And that's something we have to continue to, that's part of the stigma. We have the stigma associated with somebody that is, Uh, seeking treatment, the stigma of people that are in recovery, and then the stigma associated with people who are in recovery uh, and using a medication-assisted treatment. So that stigma, it's within our field of addiction treatment. Um, I know when Integrity House first started doing, you know, we started 50 years ago drug-free. 20 years ago we started using methadone. And initially, it took a little bit of time for all of our staff to come around and recognize that the use of methadone is gonna save lives. And, and all of us, we all, we all have stigmas. Um, if you really take a deep inside, we have a preference, we prefer a, a drug-free, or, or some people say, yes, I support MAT, but not methadone. Only uh, Vivitrol or and, um And really for the individual, That is on MAT. um, It is. It's not easy for them to get accepted into that 12-step fellowship, and talk about being on Vivitrol. Okay, we'll accept that. Buprenorphine, mm, not so much. Methadone, forget it. You know, there's really a stigma associated that in in the fellowship. Um, Fortunately, there's a lot of younger. Progressive people like Mariel and Eric and others um, that are really embracing uh, MAT, and, and hopefully over the course of time that culture is going to change um, because they need to have that ongoing support. That is, it's it's you know it could be AA meetings, NA meetings, it could be part of a church group, part of a their their mosque, their temple. Um, it could be something called Smart Recovery, which does not. They, you know, I'm not an expert on smart recovery, but it's not necessarily believing in like a higher power, mm-hmm. et cetera, and and just believing that you know you are in control mm-hmm. of everything that happens with you. So, I'll end with that.
4: I I think as we have this conversation, someone raised a really good point, and that is we haven't exactly defined recovery. So let's just take a quick round and do that. And and I'm also. Well, I'll get to that question, but how do you define recovery?
5: First, let me say about the stigma with that. What we're doing at R.W.J. Barnabas is we're acquiring a room at least once a week in every one of our hospitals to provide access to an all-recovery meeting. All-recovery meeting, it's a peer-led group. Absolutely anybody is welcome. Active using, struggling, MAT, friends, family, abstinence, whatever you could possibly think of, it's an open-door policy. Absolutely anybody is welcome. And uh, what, the definition of recovery, I mean, we, we go by. Yeah,
4: because and, and you said um, when you were talking about peer specialists, they, they need to be in recovery, I think you said for two years. Right. Yeah, so how do you, what's the what's the metric? for in The
5: recovery? metric is we go on the, the uh, SAMHSA guide, which is the eight dimensions of wellness. And I don't remember right off the bat, but <laughs> that's how we define recovery as coming in for an interview. And uh, this has been such an ongoing tiresome conversation that's been going on with uh, our whole industry for that matter. Um, I don't like to overcomplicate things, you know, it's just things are going better, you're in recovery, you're trying, you're in recovery. You know, and it depends what level you're looking at. If you're looking at to satisfy some sort of grant, there's certain boxes you got to check. You're coming in for an interview with us, we're going under the Sampson, that's what we decided after many struggles as we're going under the, you know, eight, eight dimensions of wellness. and then for me personally, you know, I, I have my own vision of recovery because I'm in recovery. But I also am—I have enough of a brain to know that I'm not going to interfere with your recovery. You know, if you're saying that you're in recovery and I personally don't agree with your recovery, who the hell would I be to say that even to make you feel? You know, it's just—it's uh, it, a touchy situation because of the long conversations that we had about it. But again, how I define it is very different. Do you,
4: is there an agreement? I want to keep going, but is there an agreement that it doesn't it includes not using drugs, or not necessarily not relapsing, but
6: not actively using? So, I mean, if you're talking from a harm reduction perspective, not necessarily. I mean, Dr. Lavunas, uh, is that that right? Um, brought up the, the fact that the the great point that we're not talking about an event here we're talking about a process. So and if you really if you think about again bringing it back to you guys, you know, put it in your own perspective, think about your own life. I you know, I tell my kids this. I have five kids. I, I tell them you should always for the rest of your life be working on something. The day you stop having goals is the day you 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 stop living. So because they you know, I'm 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 addicted to being busy. You know, I have five kids. I work at a you know very busy place, and, and uh, you know that's my thing. And but I, I'm all about you know uh, you know emotional goals, spiritual goals, physical goals, personal goals. Like always working towards something. So to me, if you're going to talk about recovery, it's about that process of getting better that we're all in. So it just happens to be specific to a mental health issue or an addiction issue for some people, but. I mean, I'm a firm believer in some way we're all screwed up. I'm sure, you know, if if we, you know, emptied the closets of what's here, we're all working on something, you know, whether it was being bullied or, you know, you know, being embarrassed because you got a big nose or it could be anything in the world. You know what I mean? You know, it could be, I'm just, you know, being silly about it, but really we all have stuff we're constantly working on. So that's what recovery is. So if you're on that spectrum of getting better, you're in recovery, whether you're, you know, there, I mean, obviously there's ideal forms of recovery. You know, we, yes, we want people to be abstinent. That's the ideal. That's the best. That's the cleanest, easiest way to do this, but not everybody chooses that path. So if somebody is gonna step down from shooting 30 bags a day and to smoking marijuana, you know, again, I say at CPC, we're not handing out joints in the waiting room, but again, if you are, you know, that you are using a less harmful drug and you're on that path to recovery. You know, we're gonna still make it a treatment issue. Hey, you know, how much are you smoking? You know, maybe cut down, whatever. But stay on that path, that getting better process. That's what recovery is. I that
7: direct your, direct, you want me to give my opinion for
6: you? And
7: then you can, you can respond to me too. Because, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, when I think of recovery, I think of someone that, um, that wants, uh, was uh, using drugs and using illicit drugs, and their life is completely out of control, and, um, and part of their life being out of control is the use of the drugs and also the behavior that's associated with the continued use of the drugs. So recovery is, um, is, is being abstinent from illicit drugs, alcohol, And practicing right living that's how I see recovery and um, and I'm the spokesperson for integrity house and that's how we see recovery so you know I should say that that person can be in in recovery and they could be on methadone they could be on Suboxone they could be on uh, Vivitrol and right now the jury's still out but it could be on medicinal marijuana also not that i want to open up that can of worms oh right i was now. just
4: hoping to open okay. it. Anyway.
7: well good let's go to let's go to dr Lavonis Le- uh, Le- first yeah.
8: okay um, first of all when you're on medications like methadone buprenorphine or uh, uh, naltrexone you can absolutely be abstinent at the same time there's no question about that you're abstinent from the uh, drugs of abuse and you are on medication but in general i think that there are two major tasks in our uh, in our work there is an abstinence goal and there's a recovery goal and the recovery the way i see it is rebuilding your life or if you started using when you were 12 building your life but this is this is what very much has been said before now pretty much everybody advocates for both sides of this for both abstinence and recovery but there's a little difference in flavor as to where you put most of your emphasis there's one strategy that basically says stay abstinent just put one you know, foot in front of the other, and of course work on your recovery as well, but the primary thing is to stay abstinent. And there's another strategy that says rebuild your life, get out of that refrigerator, start working on it, do all these goals that you have, and of course we would love you to be abstinent as well, but if you happen to have you know, a couple of beers here and there, that's not the end of the world. So it's where you put the emphasis on the two sides, although everybody pretty much advocates that both are so crucial for your success. The way that I see it is that at times of peace, when things are relatively well, you can go with either one of those strategies and have a fairly reasonable chance of success. You can either put your emphasis on abstinence or you can put your emphasis on recovery and still perhaps kind of do well. But at times of war, when life turns its ugly head and things start getting so- going south and getting real, really tough, you absolutely need both, and you cannot really afford to put emphasis on one and less emphasis on the other. And uh, the way that I see it, abstinence plus recovery equals sobriety, and sobriety is the combination of those two.
4: It's a nice, it's a nice tagline right there. Yeah. Um, let's talk about medical marijuana. Um, I happen to know that the, uh, I have it on a good authority, that the uh, Department of Health is, is I mean, they, no, the commissioner, I, I joke, the commissioner has been very, very open about the fact that um, he, he's a supporter of expanding the medical mar- uh, medicinal marijuana program. Um, they are actively looking at research that's related to opioids and how, you know, whether it's, it's different ways to treat pain, which they've already approved, so essentially efforts to reduce prescribing through expanding medical marijuana. Um, but also, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, actually treating addiction. I mean, is there a role for medical marijuana here?
5: That's a medical professional question. Uh, medical, <laughs> yes. Gonna, uh, medical, yes. Recreational, no, and that's my personal opinion. You know, exactly no. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody makes a medical decision for what they need it for. God bless you. Again, I'm not a doctor for recreational. And this is, again, my personal opinion on it. I think that there's been people that have been smoking marijuana that it hasn't bothered them, affected them, or they haven't been a, a, a burden on society. And they've just been doing their thing. Continue to do your thing. Why do you need a car, a license and all that? But again, that's just, it's a, it's another touchy, uh, situation with that and if somebody smoking marijuana who used to be shooting bundles of uh, heroin I mean they are definitely on, on a path if not their destination of getting better in some sort of way shape or form but as for the actual law itself again I'm going to pass it down work its way down to the medical part.
6: <laughs> My personal specialty in the field has always been working with teens so I've dealt with the, the marijuana legal, legalization issue. It's It comes up so often that it's, you know, you, I've had that same conversation with rooms full of, you know, not just pot smoke pot loving kids. Like, <laughs> you know, it almost becomes like a religion. Like you think about what you do when you're, you know, there, there's this, you know, there'll be pot leaves draw all over, it's like, the, you know, and, and, and I've even I've <laughs> talked to groups of kids and like, we could, I could pick any subject and within two to three minutes, it'll talk, we'll be talking about weed. Like, I, you know, <laughs> pick anything, you know, we could talk about, uh, you, know, you know, toothpaste and next, you know, you know, that one, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, it doesn't matter. They can make everything about weed. So the way, so I've been dealing with the legal, you know, legalization has been big in the past five years and my answer has always been the same is that is similar to what Eric said. I'm not a politician. I'm a treatment provider. So the legalization issue, that's up to the politicians and either way I'm here to help people. So I bring up the example of alcohol. Alcohol is legal and, CPC's got plenty of people there for alcohol. And if then if weed becomes legal recreationally or um, uh, well, it already is medically, it's not going to stop people from needing help for weed. So my, my stance on the whole marijuana issue is either extreme is, is wrong. The, you know, the marijuana is the devil. Extreme is, is, is way out of touch. And also the oh, everybody should smoke and it's completely harmless is also a ridiculous approach. You gotta, you know, if we wanna be sensible, we should take a middle of the road. For some people, there are definitely some people that it's no good, you know? That, there is that, you know, person that comes in and they, you know, I say, I tried smoking weed and next thing you know, I was doing it all day every day and I was sitting on the couch eating potato chips and, and uh, binge watching TV shows and my life was unmanageable. There is plenty of people to say that that person doesn't exist. is ridiculous because that person, there's plenty of them. They're probably like right all around this place, you know, college, you know, um, kids are failing out for smoking weed. So, again, we have to get it has to be on a case by case basis, but to stay to, to be reasonable about it, you know, that. Uh, you know, it it is a step down for some people, but it's not the answer either, you know, for, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna solve this thing just by marijuana alone, so we have to be, have to be, and again, again, I take the same approach with, with the gateway issue, again, not to go on too long about it, because, because everybody wants to talk about, is marijuana a gateway drug? Is it or isn't it? And it's not that kind of question. Sometimes it is. Are there plenty of people that uh, you know, are, are uh, using heroin or crack and they're like, man, it all started with weed. To say that those people doesn't exist, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course there's, but does everybody that smokes marijuana become that person? No, there are plenty of people, you know, if we went out here and here it is in college and we um, drug tested everybody and uh, went out on a Saturday night and get, went out with the uh, diagnosis uh, assessment, you know, this whole place, you know, probably, in, in, who knows, 80% of the people over the night would, oh, uh, cannabis use disorder. But if you went back to those, or even alcohol, you go out on a Saturday night, come back here and interview those same people in 10, 15 years. It's gonna go back to the national average, you know, around 10, somewhere 10, 20% of the population is gonna have a problem. Some people it's just a phase and some it's not. And not everybody gets to pick which path they're going to be on. So that would be my view on it.
7: Okay. So the uh, when when it comes to so there's a couple things here. The first thing is that when it comes to marijuana, um, we know that so people should not be going to jail. Jail and marijuana should not be connected with each other because it's uh, it's it it, it it disproportionately impacts communities of color, those of lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So that, you know, so that's that issue, and I think we're moving in that direction. Um, I believe our attorney general is uh, taking some steps to, uh, to stop prosecuting cases for marijuana possession. So, now let's shift to the medicinal marijuana. So I had a conversation along with a couple other treatment providers. It was part of a, I'm on the board of NJAMA, and I believe Mary Abrams may have been at the table, but it was the end of June, and it was at the health commissioner, Commissioner Al Nahal, And uh, uh, just, it was just a couple of us, a couple of addiction treatment providers, and he asked us, what do we think? about using medicinal marijuana as as part of our addiction treatment programs. And um, I wasn't really prepared for that question. So I did not, you know, I told him, you know, we need more research on that area. So there were two things that he was talking about. One is that we have individuals that are, um, they've come to us for a substance use disorder, uh, specifically an opiate use disorder and we provide services and treatment for that opiate use disorder. And those services could include medication-assisted treatment. Now, that same individual has an issue with chronic pain. We know that opiates could lead them to death. So is your doctor going to prescribe an opiate or is he going to prescribe medicinal marijuana, which has less risk factors than opiates? So that was the question from the Commissioner of Health. And then the, the other question, which I, 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 I haven't completely wrapped my head around, was actually using medicinal marijuana to treat opiate use disorders. So um, I'm going to defer to the medical professional. I don't, I don't think we have enough research on that. I, I think that we do have the research about using it for chronic pain. And and, and I just, you know, if you just ask the public, you know, the public says, you know, that this should not be, we can't keep on locking people up for this. Some people, you know, are actually, it's very helpful for some people that are using the medicinal marijuana. But in terms of using the medicinal marijuana to treat an opiate use disorder, uh, my response to the commissioner is, let's let's look at some research. Let's see, and obviously we're not gonna be closed-minded, Um, but let's look at the research. Now we will pass it to the medical expert.
8: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Um, couldn't agree more about the legal aspects that were just uh, presented by Bob, and I think most of us are on on board with that. Two separate issues, legalization of marijuana and uh, medicinal marijuana. I think that the legalization issue is truly not only up to the politicians, up to the people, By voting, I think it's a very, very reasonable thing to say that uh, marijuana should be uh, legalized. I think that there are pros and and cons. Um, We we have laws that require uh, helmets for people, so we do uh, in a way try to protect people, even though that they. It's their own lives, so it's 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 a it's a moral question of what is the responsibility of the society towards an individual, and all that stuff does not really have to do that much with medicine. But when it comes to medicinal marijuana, I think that this is backdoor medicine, that we should have much higher standards for proving something and for um, recommending it to our patients. Uh, I think that uh, going through a vote to say if a medication is good for you or not is not the way to go. Uh, Even when we have medications go through all the hoops of the FDA, still we get with some kind of problems. But having it just go by a vote, you won't believe how much... The pharmaceutical industry is breathing down our our necks to release, release, release all these psychoactive uh, substances to to the public because they have a promise. And we are trying to hold that wave back and say, no, not until we have crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's before we can really recommend a medication to patients. Let's get a little specific here. Tetrahydrocannabinol, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient, the psychoactive active ingredient in marijuana, has been legal as a medication for decades. Uh, we just can prescribe it as a pill. I've done it many times. It is approved for pain. It's approved for nausea. It's approved for uh, weight loss, especially in HIV patients. This is something that's very routine in medicine. The issue of medicinal marijuana is you have to convince me that smoking something is so much better for you than having it as a pill. And there are some good arguments about that. It's not just a a crazy argument. It is that there is an entourage uh, uh, argument that perhaps there are so many other cannabinoids in the smoked marijuana and only in that kind of combination you would get the beneficial aspects of uh, analgesia which you do not get with a single product that you can get out of your mouth. There, There are arguments there. But they have not been elucidated, they have not been studied in detail, and they are not convincing at this point that they are so much better than the pill. Cannabidiol. Cannabidiol was approved for two specific seizure disorders in the spring. It hasn't been available yet, but any moment now, you can absolutely buy it in a a pharmacy with a doctor's prescription, going through all the regulations that are required before you can release uh, a, a medication. The biggest problem that I have with this idea is that people say smoking marijuana is effective for reducing anxiety, for reducing depression, for reducing all kinds of things. Of course it is. No question about it. Every drug of abuse, every psychoactive psychiatrist will do something for you. Cocaine is an amazing antidepressant. You are depressed, you take cocaine, you're not depressed anymore. Xanax, how many patients have come to me and they look at me in the eye and say, doc, I'm anxious, I take my Xanax, I'm not anxious anymore. You must be so mean not to write my Xanax for me. And then, you know, I still don't write the Xanax because I know of the long-term potentials because of the addictions and so on. Have we studied all these things? What about pregnancy? What about lactation? What about the addictive potential? What about dosing of these medications? What about the effects on the elderly? What are the effects on special populations? What's the interaction with HIV? What are the drug-drug interactions with other medications? Have we really done all this work? Have we crossed all our T's and all our our, our I's before we can release this medication and essentially bow to the pressure of the pharmaceutical industry that so much would like us to have done that yesterday that's the problem that I have
4: There's physicians down there hogging the mic, just one, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, I'm just wondering, you know, let's talk about the money a little bit. Um, a lot of the money comes from, you know, obviously uh, state or federal sources in this case. You know, how do you move the needle on that and how do you get insurance companies to do more, um, to, to sort of understand, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, they're always thinking about the sort of the profit loss ratio here. If, if, you know, every time someone, goes into um, a crisis and ends up back in an emergency room where you have to repeat a cycle of one month or two months of treatment um, or even a week or two you know, of inpatient t- treatment or even detox, that's far more expensive, I would think, than paying for some of these other services on the recovery side of the, the spectrum. So let's talk about that for a second.
7: I, I could talk about it briefly, <laughs> is that... Um... I think one of the problems with our system, and I'm sure Dr. Lavonis would agree, I hope you would agree with this, is that, um, is that really the uh, treatment needs to be uh, clinically driven. And in the treatment plan is a agreed-upon partnership between the individual who needs to help and then the treating clinician, whether whether it be a a doctor, an MD, a psychiatrist, or, or another licensed professional. So what happens is that the uh, professional will sit with the client and have an agreed upon treatment plan, but then the phone kill needs to go to the insurance company. And the insurance company or the managed care company, and even I'll throw Medicaid into this, um, they have their own opinions in terms of what would be the appropriate intensity of care and the appropriate length of care. And, and I know that it's very frustrating. It's, you know, it's frustrating for all of the addiction professionals, but especially for the doctors. You know, you, you have doctors that have gone to school for how many years, Dr. Lavonis? Forever, 12 years of schooling, <laughs> a, you know, a residency, a fellowship, etc. and they see an individual and they prescribe a dosage of care or a certain level of care and a certain length. And then that goes to someone that is in an office in either Newark, New Jersey or Louisville, Kentucky or Austin, Texas, wherever they are. Um, And they look at it and they say, nope, nope, this person, you know, not for that level of care. Let's go a step lower than that. And, you know, instead of, you know, the number of days, let's reduce the number of days. So I think when it comes to paying for services, that, um, you know, I think there's a struggle there uh, with the experts and the professionals, uh, having someone in front of them and knowing what they're doing and then getting pushback. And then the other piece is making sure that we're recognizing addiction as a chronic disease. And with a chronic disease, an acute intervention alone is not effective. In other words, if someone has a chronic disease and the payer of services says, okay, we're going to approve, you know, uh, three days of detox and uh, three weeks of outpatient treatment, and then the person should be good. They should be done. Um, In the chronic disease uh, model, it requires you know, ongoing services. Yes, the intensity of those services continue to decrease, but it is an issue that requires disease management over the course of time. Just like someone that is a a diabetic, where a diabetic will have an acute intervention and they'll see their doctor once a month for the first year and then they'll start going back, you know, uh, several times a year. And then I'm sure if someone with diabetes at least goes back to their doctor you know, twice a year to get checked in addition to checking their blood daily. So it's disease management, and that's really what we need to see uh, to ensure the long-term recovery of the folks that we're working with. Would you like to talk about the payers?
8: Come on. No, that's your your journey. You do very well.
4: Uh, I'm thinking also about uh, Robert Wood Barnabas, I mean RWJB. I know they've gotten very creative in how they've funded work around other programs. Um, I remember uh, interviewing the CEO one time and he was talking about um, seniorizing programs in which they essentially have have just taken money out of whatever pot they have, and they have some deep pots of money over there, I think. Um, I haven't found them. Yeah, well, that that was it. There we go. Um, And invested in... um, in helping seniors make sure they're not tripping hazards and things like that in their homes, because obviously that's so much less costly than paying for them once they break their hip and come into the emergency room. Um, Are there programs that that, that you work with that are sort of proactive in that way and get kind of outside the normal, here's how we get reimbursed for things, or I don't know if there are any examples that you think of? Uh,
5: I think most of you know we started out as a, a state grant called ORP, Opioid Overdose Recovery Program. We were only allowed to deal with Narcan reversals. Um, we had private funding from one of our hospitals that allowed us to deal with people who have not been Narcanned. So, And prior to that, us being in recovery who were walking into bedside, there's not soundproof walls on each side of the bed. So we're talking, having a peer-to-peer intervention with an individual. And somebody would pull the curtain. I need help too, I need help too. So you'd walk in to see one that you got a phone call on, you'd walk out with three. And, uh, you know, whether one was getting documented, you know, they were, we were just providing help and resources and encouragement and co- you know, recovery coaching and whatnot. So, but with the private funding, the one we actually had statistics and numbers that branched out to was proven facts, how much uh, help were given individuals, and from there, we were able to go back to the state, and then we wound up getting what's called ORP expansion. And now we're allowed to deal with non-NARCAN as well, and we have full-time recovery specialists 24-7 in our hospitals. So we are able to come up with data, and, uh, you know, it's a proven fact now, so it's worked out well. So that was a little creative scenario there.
4: Um, we are basically out of time, but I wanna give everyone a chance for just quick final thoughts. Um, And I always like to think, you know, if you could change one thing in sort of state policy or federal policy, um, what would it be? And we'll start at that end.
8: I thought I had a moment to think about that. No. Uh, Well,
4: (laughs) we can start in the middle if
8: you want. (laughs) Um, The general idea would be to reduce regulations uh, uh, with respect to buprenorphine, I think that would be uh, of great help for us uh, to make it uh, available to people the same way that we make all medications available to people. We, we have no regulations for full-strength opioids, for uh, the oxycodones and the hydrocodones and hydromorphins of the world that do so much more damage to our patients. And then we have all these regulations for the solution to that problem, and that's insane.
4: That's a have heard that one.
7: I, I would say, and, and I'm not sure a policy change would um, would, would make this happen, but, but really we need to create a situation where we have treatment upon demand, uh, treatment services available upon demand, and, and that would require a lot of coordination uh, among the treatment providers across the state of New Jersey and those that provide the supportive services associated with that. And the reason is, is that um, the, the window of time, you, you have an individual that's using drugs, that's addicted to drugs, and they may say, I'm ready for treatment today. And if you don't get them into treatment today, they may not come tomorrow. And, and And that's something that because they'll
4: be sick by that night, <clears throat> and they'll need to do something about it. And it, there's it, that
7: it, exactly. so it, it's really a, a, a an issue that is bigger than us here in the room, but it really requires collaboration and teamwork and we work with the folks at RWJ Barnabas to try to get folks from the emergency room into treatment and we work closely with uh, with Dr. Lavonis and, and, and his staff and also University Hospital in Newark and and, and really I think uh, having the services available when uh, the individual needs them is really important.
4: Thank you.
6: We got any counselors in here working in the field? Yeah, you guys are gonna identify what the, of course, there needs to be regulations, but uh, it, it's gone to another extreme. If I ruled the world or if New Jersey, did. I would—we we, got to get rid of. Some, there's too much red tape. There's too much to to being in an administrative role and, and also being a counselor to open up a program to try. You know, the, the, we get all this press about opioid epidemic, but then when you finally try to help someone, the what you have to do to get person from point A to point B, how many forms you have to fill out, how many you know, phone calls you—it's it, it's insane, you know, many I've heard counselors say, you know, am I treating the patient or am I treating the chart? You know what I mean? So again, don't get me wrong, it shouldn't be anarchy either. I mean, there needs to be regulation. It shouldn't just be anybody can hang up a, you know, a, a sign and say, here, I'm a counselor. But at the same time, it's to the other extreme. There are the barriers, the obstacles for funding, for just getting people what they need. It's, it's, a, it's very time consuming, let's put it that way.
5: Eric. Well. I got to jump on Bob's coattail because I literally have been working seven days a week, 24 hours a day for almost three years, and that treatment on demand is so needed, especially after four o'clock. Um, I get most of my calls at night, and it's my job, my whole team's job, to keep that window of opportunity open until the assessment on a maybe, which is going to start about 8:30 the following weekday morning. So I would definitely uh, change that and have treatment on demand. I think that's beyond needed and, uh, you know, it's gotta happen.
4: Thank you. Um, thank you, all of you, very much for what well, was an excellent discussion, I enjoyed it. And thank you to our audience and to our sponsors for making this possible, but to our audience for, uh, for being here and for such great questions. Round of applause for this
1: And a, a round of applause for Lilo as well for leading that discussion. So again, uh, the next couple days, not only does she moderate, but she's going to write a story about this. Um, so um, stay tuned on that. We will also, as I mentioned, um, be building a page around this event, which will include podcasts that you can share um, and you know, keep the discussion going. Uh, please, before you leave, if you can, fill out also the surveys and you can leave them either on the tables or we have a box in the back. And thank you all for coming and being part of this.
0: We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. If you'd like information on upcoming roundtable programs, visit njspotlight.com for more information. We produce this program in the studios of State Broadcast News in Cherry Hill. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight. News, issues, and insight for New Jersey.